All right. Well, it's such a, a privilege to be together. It's a, amazing to be a Christian. We are uh, weak and sinful, but God is good, and he's provided a savior for uh, sinners like us, and that's a big part of why we're here is just to proclaim uh, the good news of what God has done through Christ. There is, there is hope, and uh, we right now are not actually on our own. God is with us, and he speaks, and the place that he speaks is in his word. So if you'll uh, take your Bible, if you haven't already, and open with me to Titus chapter 1. We're looking at Titus chapter 1, and, and normally, uh, if you come here, normally we are working our way through uh, one book of the Bible. So we've been working our way through the Gospel of Luke, just uh, verse by verse, story by story. Uh, but that's a long book, and it is uh, summer, and uh, we're taking a little break, and we're talking about leadership, leadership in uh, the local church specifically, and we're looking at Titus chapter 1, uh, verses 5 through 9, where Paul writes, uh, this is why I left you in Crete. He's talking to Titus, and he says, this is why I left you in Crete, so that you might put what remained into order. That's how he begins, so that you might put what remained into order, which kind of implies, obviously, that things needed to be put into order. Uh, Paul was a, a missionary, and he had been on Crete at some point, and he started uh, some churches. And uh, even though they were churches that he, Paul, started, there was uh, more to, to do. They weren't finished, uh, you know, and, and that's normal. There's, there's more to do. It was a little bit messy. And so he left Titus to work on it. And uh, we can understand that, I think. We can process messy churches. I would guess that most of us know and have known churches that need to be put into order. We know uh, what it's like for a church to be messy. We've probably all been part of that because we are messy. And uh, sometimes, of course, churches are more than messy. Uh, they're actually headed in the wrong direction. I think we've all probably known churches like that as well, unfortunately. There are uh, both of those kinds of churches in the New Testament, even. Uh, the church in Galatia was headed in the wrong direction, where the church in Corinth was more messy. I'm not sure where the churches in Crete stood exactly, but they definitely needed help. And I want us to look together at where Paul starts, because he recognizes there's a problem. That's part of why he left Titus there. And he takes action. We look at this passage. How does Paul think Titus can turn, turn this church around, uh, churches around? Where is he supposed to start? And I think, whether you know it or not, that's a pretty important question. How do you put a church in order? And it's an important question, not just for churches that are in trouble, but actually for every church. Because basically, we're asking, what does it take to have a, a strong church, a strong local church? If we're going to be a healthy, biblical, local church, what needs to be our priorities? What do we need to do to head in the right direction? Have you ever thought about that? I'm sure some of you have thought about that. What are the essentials to a strong local church? And one of the reasons that is an important question is because the church is important. Seems ordinary, uh, something that we're probably uh, used to, many of us, but the local church is important to God for sure. It's described in the Bible as the household of God, the family of God. 
And it's an important part of God's plan. God has a plan. He is at work in the world. And the church, the local church, is an important part of that plan because God has entrusted us. This is such a a privilege. He has entrusted us with a message that is true and that is about the most important event in the history of the world and about the most important issues in life and that has the power to change people forever. So the church is important to God and the church is an important part of God's plan and it's an important part of how God is at work in us as well. It's not just important for uh, other people. God has things that he wants to do in you. And one way he plans to do that is through the local church. I know we like to think of our lives so individually and so even spiritually, we kind of think of like me and, and God. But if you read the Bible, you find out that it talks a lot about us. The Bible doesn't really have this concept of someone who says he's a Christian who's not connected to a local church. This is a big part of God's strategy. He's got all these good things that he wants to do in our lives through the local church. So it's important that we think about what does it take to have a strong local church because the church is important and because people have different ideas actually about the church and about what it takes. It's kind of amazing if you talk to people, all the different ideas people have about what makes a strong church. In fact, uh, sometimes I'll hear people say things uh, that people are looking for in a church, and I'll think, they can't think that. They can't really think that. But then I find out they do think that. They actually think that. They sometimes think that. And, And while I don't know exactly what people prioritize around here, I haven't been back in America that long, uh, the real question is, what does God think is important in a local church? If you ask God, what does it take to have a strong local church, where does he start? And the first place he would start for sure is the gospel, not what we do, but what he's done through Jesus Christ. And I want to make sure we emphasize that because we're looking at this book, Titus. And sometimes when we look at Titus, we almost think of it like a a manual for how to do church. And there are things that are definitely helpful and important in here that we need to do if we're going to be a strong church. But all that stuff is impossible if you take out the gospel, if you take out what God has done through Jesus Christ. So I kind of actually think that's like the secret sauce to the book of Titus, really, because Crete where Titus was, was a bad place. Like, it was a really bad place. One of my favorite verses in Titus, actually, is where Paul says, the Cretans are always this, that, this, that. And then he's like, you know, that testimony is true. He's like, that's what Crete was like. And yet Paul left Titus there to put this church in order and to disciple these people and to help them live like these radically transform lives. And there's things that Titus needs to do in order for that to happen. But the reason he can have any hope that his work can have any impact at all is because of the gospel. That's why Paul could leave Titus there. If you think about how the book opens up, verse one, Paul's introduction. Paul, a servant of God and an apostle of Jesus Christ, for the sake of the faith of God's elect and their knowledge of the truth, which accords with godliness. And there's another way you could translate that that I like better. 
their knowledge of the truth, which leads to godliness. Paul's saying God has chosen people in Crete and he has acted and he has raised up people like Paul to proclaim the truth and he uses that truth to change people and make his people godly. And then later in chapter two, Paul tells Titus, you know, you need to help these people live in a way that matches up with what they believe. And he gets real specific. And if you look at how Titus is supposed to disciple these people, it seems kind of overwhelming at first. And just when you're thinking, how in the world is Titus going to be able to do that? Verse 11, Paul says, for, for the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age. And so it's like Titus do all this and keep doing all this because you know the gospel. You know that Jesus died for these people and Jesus is at work in these people. And chapter three is the same. He says, Titus, tell them to live this way in this wicked world. And verse three, how are they gonna do that? Because they were like everyone else. They were foolish, they were disobedient, they were all these bad things. And Paul says, but God, but God our savior appeared. And you know, people get cynical about the church, of course, for sure. They're like, ah, churches are all the same. People don't change. But God changes people. And the reason that we can even talk about having a strong local church is because God has acted. It's because of what God has done through Jesus. So yeah, on our own, we are like everyone else and we're gonna totally mess up relationships and mess up God's plan for the church but the thing is, we're not on our own. God has sent his son into the world to die for sinners. And you know what? He rose from the dead and he ascended into heaven and he's not done working. He is still committed to saving and changing sinners. He is at work. And so it's the gospel that gives us hope that we can have a strong local church. And if we're gonna have a strong local church, first and foremost, it's gonna be the gospel that God uses to do it. And so we need to be committed to this gospel, to teaching this gospel, to protecting this gospel, to promoting this gospel. That would be like absolutely number one. The, the hope is Jesus and what God does through Jesus. And so you can get a lot of things wrong when it comes to the church, but the one thing you can't get wrong the one thing you have to emphasize over and over and over and over is the gospel. Without that, you don't have a church, you have a group. And you don't actually even have the power to become something else because the gospel, this message, is the power of God for salvation. So the gospel is first. But second, what else? That should be obvious. But second, maybe not as obvious. Maybe obvious, maybe not as obvious though. Titus chapter one, verse five. This is why I left you in Crete, so that you might put what remained into order and appoint elders in every town as I directed you. First gospel, second leaders, elders. Pointing elders was not separate from putting what remained into order. It's part of how Titus was to put what remained into order. And it was an important part to Paul. And we know that because before he left Titus, in Crete, he told Titus about this. He says, as I directed you. And then after he left Crete and he was somewhere else in the world, he wrote Titus a letter. And pretty much the first thing he says is, 
Remember, this is why I left you in Crete. I want you to put the churches in order, and one way you do that is by appointing elders. Strong churches require strong leaders, and specifically, the, the term Paul uses for leaders in this text is elders, but they're not the only leaders in the church. So in Timothy, in a couple weeks, we're going to talk about deacons, and I, I can't wait. But in, in Titus, elders. Here he talks about elders, and we're going to talk about elders, because I find a lot of people have different ideas about elders. And if we're going to understand church leadership, we need to talk about elders. What does God want us to understand about elders? First, we need elders. How simple is that? That's the first point, the need. And our church has elders, and we have elders because we need elders, and we'll always need elders until Jesus comes back, and we need to keep developing elders. That's why we're having that little class in September called uh, Aspire class, because A church always has to be working on raising up elders. It's a constant process. And one reason I'm confident that we need elders is because that's where Paul tells Titus to start. Again, chapter 1, verse 5, this is why I left you there, that you might appoint elders. And we know he doesn't just mean someone who is old when he talks about elders. Otherwise, Titus wouldn't have to appoint them to be an elder. If it were just age, you don't get appointed to that. Unfortunately, it just happens. This was... An office, and it's a New Testament office, really, what Paul's talking about. So if we look at the Old Testament, there wasn't a church. There was a nation called Israel, and the nation Israel had towns. And in those towns, they had respected community leaders that were sometimes called elders. If you remember Moses, if you think about Moses, Israel was getting to be too much for him. And so Jethro comes, and he's like, hey, this is what you need to do. And what Moses did was appoint leaders to help him who were called elders. And so there is a little Old Testament background to the office of elder, and there were some things that these elders might have had in common with those in the Old Testament, like they would have been mature and respected, but there were going to be some things that were different as well, definitely when it came to what they were supposed to do, because obviously the church is is not a nation. Uh, It's something different, and yet it still needs leadership. And so they borrowed the idea and the title from the Old Testament, but they took a new approach when it came to the specific role or office itself. So first, Jesus appointed apostles, and then as the apostles established churches, they appointed elders as leaders. And this is one of the terms that the Bible uses for this role. But the Bible actually uses a number of different terms to describe men who have been set apart to lead the church. And elders is just one, a synonym for elders that we even see in this text is overseer. Do you see that down in verse 7? For an overseer. And so there are two Greek words here. Elder is presbyteros, and the other word is episkopos. And we have two whole denominations based on those words, actually. Now, Presbyterian and Episcopal. And uh, sometimes the word overseer is translated bishop. That's where we get the word bishop from. And so it's tempting to kind of think of elders and bishops and things like that as different ideas, but the reality is those words were used interchangeably in the scriptures to describe the same exact role. So you could say, we need elders, we need overseers. And there's another word that the Bible uses for elder. In fact, in Titus, it's here. If we look down at the text, Paul gives us another term. He says again in verse 7, for an overseer as God's steward. An elder is an overseer is God's steward. And those are just different angles 
to help us understand what an elder actually does. An overseer is someone who, shocker, oversees. He watches out. He pays careful attention to the church and has a specific responsibility that has been recognized by that church for the spiritual good of the lives of the believers in that church. And a steward is someone who manages something that is not his own. So if I were rich and I had all kinds of properties, I might hire a steward, and the steward's job would be to take care of those properties in my place. And so obviously he would have authority, but it's not his authority. He, he's representing me, the owner. And that's kind of an elder's role in the church. The church belongs to God, and yet he's giving elders to the church to watch out for the church on his behalf. Another term the Bible uses for elder, and this uh, messes with some people a little, but it's the word pastor. And the word pastor means shepherd. I could only find one other time in the New Testament where this word's used to describe an office in the church, believe it or not. That's Ephesians 4.11, where it says Jesus gave pastors to the church. But you know, it's used to describe something that elders do several times. Like 1 Peter 5, it says, I exhort the elders among you, shepherd the flock of God. And that's the word pastor. Elders, pastor. Paul makes a, a similar exhortation in Acts 20. He gathers the elders together, and you know what he tells them? Shepherd the church of God. And so who is he calling to pastor the church of God? Elders. Elders, pastor. And you hear the, the plural, right? Elders. Because it's not, this is why I left you in Crete, so that you might appoint elder in every town. It's elders. The church is meant to have a shared leadership. And that's why the word is almost always found in the plural when you read it in the New Testament, which doesn't mean, obviously, that every elder is going to be gifted in the same way or that every elder is going to have the same amount of time because there are going to be some elders who actually work full-time jobs and have families and others have the privilege of working full-time for the church. So we need to appreciate that. And some elders may take the lead in certain areas and our expectations of elders need to be realistic, but just because some elders have more opportunities or specific giftings doesn't mean certain elders are more important. Leadership in the local church is supposed to be a team effort. So first, we need elders. A strong church requires strong elders. Second, though, what kind of elders do we, do we need? That's the second kind of thing we can see in this passage the kind of elders we need because probably the only thing worse than no leadership is bad leadership. If you talk to someone who owns a few stores and they're having problems, he, he gets the right manager and his problems are almost over, but he gets the wrong manager and his problems are just beginning, which is true in a local church to a certain extent. We need to be looking for leaders all the time. We can't stop, but what kind of leaders should we be looking for? Because bad leaders have been the curse of the church all over the world for so many years. And one reason we keep having bad leaders is because we're using the wrong grid for what makes a good leader. You know, we like make the same mistake over and over and over. And I wish it wasn't like this, but there are many churches where you talk about elders and who should be a leader, and people glance at the biblical qualifications, but almost automatically look instead to, like, who's successful as a businessman, <laughs> or who's, like, respected in the community, or well-liked, or who, this is strange, but who has a certain degree? 
And it's, it's funny to me, but it's real. Like someone gets a certain degree and we think he's qualified to be an elder almost automatically. And someone doesn't have that degree and we're wondering, even if he's got all the qualifications that Paul lists. And it's like, wait a second, where did that come from? Because it's not from the Bible, it's more from our world where we focus more on what a person can do or what he has done. But if you look at Titus chapter one, you see Paul doesn't spend much time on what they can do or where they've studied or how much they've accomplished, certainly not as much time as he does on who they are. Who, who comes before what? And that should almost be like a, a proverb. Character matters. Now, what kind of character matters? Because uh, you ask different people what makes a good leader and you get some different answers. Some answers, not so great. I think, if you look at what people are actually looking for in a leader. Others' answers, other answers, pretty good. You know, I like to read these kinds of lists, specifically what do leaders look for in leaders, but I'm sure you've heard many of them. John Mott, he has won. He won the Nobel Peace Prize. He was an evangelist, a leader in YMCA when the C meant something, but he had a list when he was looking for leaders, some questions like, does he do little things well? And has he learned the meaning of priorities? How does he use his recreation? Has he intensity? Has he potential for growth? What's his attitude towards discouragement? How does he face impossible situations? And that's, that's good. Oswald Sanders, do you know him? He wrote a great book on a spiritual leadership, like a classic. When he was looking for a leader, he would ask questions like, is he able to change? Has he ever broken a bad habit? Does he have self-control when things go wrong? Does he think independently? How does he respond to criticism? Is he a peacemaker? Is he a good motivator? How does he respond when people disagree with him? Is he good at making friends? Is he dependent on the approval of others? Do the people he's leading feel comfortable around him? Is he interested in people? Is he quick to forgive? Does he welcome responsibility? Does he direct people or develop people? And those, again, are helpful. John Piper, talks about some of the essentials, and he's got a list of about 18 things he looks for in leaders. So this is long, but he says, leaders are restless. They're not content with the status quo. They're optimistic because they know God is good. They're intense. That sounds like John Piper, if you ever get a chance to listen to him. Self-controlled, thick-skinned, energetic, hard thinkers, articulate, able to teach, tactful, theological, dreamers, organized. That's a funny one, but he, he says a leader's favorite shape is a straight line, not a circle. And then decisive, persevering, loving, and restful. Restless and restful, that's a rare combination. And that's pretty good, too. I was at a conference a while back with John MacArthur, and he, he sort of off the cuff shared some things about leadership. He says, there needs to be consistency. A leader needs to be someone who is steady. He says, all, virtually all leadership is verbal. So is this a person who can articulate a vision for the future with uh, clarity? But then he talks about personal integrity. There shouldn't be a disconnect between what a leader says and who they are. So look for people whose life matches their words. And then he highlights selflessness. Your whole battle as a leader is to advance your people. That's what a leader does. So look for people who are others oriented. And then he says leaders see what others don't. This is a quality that's important to him, the ability to discern and then attitude. Attitude's more important than skill kindness and joy and hardworking. He says, the currency of success is energy. And I don't know about you, but I love lists like that. Otherwise, I wouldn't have read them. They're helpful. But as we look down at Titus, we find specifically 
an even better list because this is what God is actually looking for in a leader. And the big thing that stands out is that God's list is just so different than most people's because here is the most important institution on the planet and these are the kinds of men he's looking to lead it and it doesn't have anything to do with education or personality really. It's pretty much all about character and, and being godly and the one term to help us understand what he means more specifically is the word blameless. You see, Paul gives a list of qualities if you look down at verses six through eight, and he repeats one because it's almost like the summarizing characteristic, and it's this word blameless or above reproach. That's blameless. That's what it it means. If anyone's above reproach, and then verse seven, for an overseer as God's steward must be above reproach. And that word literally means without accusation. It's translated in another passage, guiltless, which at first seems pretty intense, right? Like um, guiltless. But it's a little less intense than it sounds because it can't mean sinless, obviously. Otherwise, it would be impossible for any of us to be an elder. And only Jesus could be an elder, and he's in heaven right now. So it's not sinless. And I don't think it means either that there can't ever be any questions. Like if you're going to be an elder, A leader, you can't ever have anyone look at your life and say there's areas for growth or that you can't ever have anyone make an accusation about you because Jesus himself had a lot of accusations made. He was literally crucified and he was blameless. And Paul, the one who wrote this, is constantly having to defend himself in his letters. And so this is something that just comes with leadership, really, accusations. I mean, put cardboard man as a leader and people are gonna make accusations. You're gonna have people that don't like you and what you're doing or oppose you or question you just because you're in leadership. Plus you are human, so you do have areas to grow. And so I think that would be a pretty heavy burden to lay on anyone in this world that like you have to get everything right if you're gonna be an elder. In Africa, they were pretty soft on leaders. and they would uh, almost put up with anything. And you're like, wow, because they value relationships so much. In America, we're different though. We can be so tough and not show any grace. And if we're gonna have leaders, we definitely are gonna need to show grace because we are sinners living with other sinners. And so to say blameless means that at every moment, every single person always only thinks you're doing awesome is not fair. And we need to apply the gospel as we think about leaders and future leaders because these men are sinners who have been saved by God's grace. And yet that doesn't mean they're not ever gonna sin or make mistakes. We know sanctification is a process. And so it doesn't mean perfect, blameless, but what does it mean? And we don't need to make it overcomplicated because Paul's not like using this phrase in a technical sense. It's more just a way of speaking. Be above reproach, be blameless. In other words, be the kind of person who has a reputation for holiness. That's what we're looking for in a leader. And yet still it might be a little vague because I know people have different ideas of what holiness means, which is why Paul gets specific. And he's like, okay, let me give you three areas where someone who's gonna be an elder really needs to set an example, needs to be above reproach. And the first is his family, verse six. Paul says he needs to be the husband of one wife which at first doesn't sound too hard to understand, but this is actually probably the most debated qualification in terms of what it actually means. So there's a really straightforward interpretation, which is that he literally can't have two wives, 
which is a start in some contexts. Actually, I was a missionary in Africa for a long time, so you have to say that. If you are married, you need to only have one, one spouse. A polygamist can't be an elder. But the thing is, if you look at the rest of the qualifications, they all require some more thoughts. So they're not really like a, a checklist. For example, he says later, he must not be arrogant. And that's not like a little check in the, check the box. So probably husband of one my, wife means more than just literally only have one wife, end of, end of story. Now some other people think it means you have to have a wife. That's what it means, husband of one wife, an elder has to be married. And I've met people who thought that, and sometimes they won't say it straight out because it sounds weird, but they acted like it. But really, I think that would be a stretch as well, because Jesus was single. We, f we f literally follow a single man. I mean, the most holy and most wise person who ever lived was single. And even the person who wrote this, Paul, was single. And why would being single mean that you weren't above reproach anyway, because this is a moral issue. He's talking about what it means to be above reproach, and he's looking at a man's relationship with women. So another way you could translate this is one woman man, which is probably what it means. You know how, like in some languages, wife and woman, man and husband are the same word, which is probably what's going on here. And certainly big picture is definitely a requirement. If someone's a single person, being above reproach means being a person who's not playing, who's not a flirt, who's respectful to women. And for a married person, it means being a man who's faithful, who's devoted to his wife, who nourishes her and cherishes her, which is different when it comes to thinking about leadership. Like, please, I know you read that and you're like, it's so simple. But this is really different. To, to put a man's relationship with women and his purity at that high level of importance is different. In fact, I was kind of struck this week actually, because if you think about it, I would guess, and this is really sad, but most of the greatest leaders in the history of the world, in terms of who people looked to as leaders, were sexually promiscuous. Um, they didn't meet this qualification. If you start to make a list, like think back to like people think are, individuals people think are great leaders. Like most of them would be out. It's sad, it's really sad. Even Gandhi, you know Gandhi? Weird guy, this way. Uh, Napoleon, Mandela, at least 15 US presidents. It's like, I'm, I'm sure more, it's really, really super rare for worldly leaders to be one women man. Which tells me how much we need to absolutely emphasize this when it comes to leadership in the church because it seems kind of unremarkable at first, like Paul, obviously, but it's not unremarkable. It's really remarkable and vital, especially nowadays when there is so, but there are so many opportunities for sexual sin. We need, we absolutely need to, for God to raise up men who demonstrate a consistent pattern of fleeing sexual temptation. Men who don't look at sexually explicit material and who are known for their love for their wife and not just like on Facebook and Instagram, but at home. It should be so obvious. He cherishes his wife. That's one. That's number one. And then number two, Paul says, what about his children? In, in my version, it says, and his children are believers and not open to the charge of debauchery or insubordination, which again, you, you have to think about because first of all, some people think this means an elder must be married and have children, which again, it's hard for me to imagine Paul not letting Jesus be an elder. 
So instead, I think he's writing in terms of the most common situation and what should be true when this situation exists in a man's life. If he's married and if he has children, they must believe. Now, you need to know the word believe literally means faithful. It's one of those words, again, you could use in two different ways, believe or faithful. And so you could translate this having faithful children, which is a better translation here because I don't think Paul means if you're going to be above reproach and lead in the church, your children have to be Christians for a lot of reasons. Like, first, if you look at 1 Timothy 3, 4, Paul gives a similar list of qualifications there for elders. And he's actually writing a church that was around a lot longer. And yet, you know what he says about an elder's children there? He says, he must manage his household with all dignity, uh, keeping his children submissive. And so I don't know why he would give Timothy one qualification and then Titus a more difficult one, especially when the churches in Crete were newer churches. And then second, if Paul's saying, let me give you some ways to evaluate if a man's above reproach, you would think he would give some things that he was personally responsible for. And so requiring a man's children to have saving faith would be like saying the elders personally responsible for their salvation. And yet, obviously, if my children become Christians, that's not something I can take credit for, really. That's not something that we have the ability to do in the scripture. And then third, if you look at the rest of the verse, which is usually important when you're trying to understand what something means, Paul says his children need to be faithful and what? Not open to the charge of debauchery and insubordination. And I don't know, but when I think about what does it look like to have a believing child, I don't think, well, one, they should be not open to the charge of debauchery or insubordination. That seems more like a way of evaluating whether they're trustworthy kind of children, which I think is what Paul's going after here when he talks about leadership. He thinks character, and what's he looking for? A pattern of holiness, and where does he start looking? The home. Let's look at this man's relationship with his wife, and if he's not married with women in general, and then if he is married and has children, how does he manage his home? What kind of leadership do we see going on there? Are his children basically trustworthy? Do they respect him? Do they listen to him? Or do they think and act just like everyone else? And there's more there, I'm sure. But when Paul thinks about qualities for future leaders, first Paul goes to the family. How does he manage his home? And then second, he gets a little more personal. He looks at the man's personal life. And believe it or not, we're trying to go through this super quickly. But it's worth uh, slowing down and thinking about because Paul's giving us a picture of what it looks like to be godly, really. And I know uh, sometimes we think of people in positions of leadership as having to be so extraordinary but that misses the point because leaders are supposed to show us what ordinary Christian living looks like. So you should be able to come to church and you should be able to say, I need an example of what it means to be a Christian right now. And we should be able to say as a church, look at our elders. And to help us get an idea of what it, that looks like, Paul starts with a bunch of knots in verse 7. One, he says he must not be arrogant. And this one is huge. We absolutely cannot have proud elders. But what does that mean exactly? Being arrogant means basically, obviously, that he really likes himself and that he looks down on other people and he has to have his own way. So he's pretty sure that he's more important than everyone else in the room and is committed to his own opinion no matter what. He's self-willed. It's like my way or the highway with him, which seems kind of obvious, but when it comes to leadership is actually challenging because part of leadership is what? wanting to get things done. And so just having ideas and convictions and even a little confidence can't be the same thing as being arrogant. 
But at the same time, Christian leadership is so different because we serve someone who taught us that whoever would be first must be slave of all, and who gave us this picture of leadership as washing people's feet. And so here we're following someone who turned the normal way of thinking about leadership upside down, which is why it's vital, like non-negotiable, that spiritual leaders must not be self-willed or humble. They, they absolutely have to be humble, which sounds simple, but it's not simple at all. And one reason this is a hard quality to evaluate is because we all struggle with pride. And one way we struggle with pride is that we tend to think everyone else is proud but us. And especially those who have different ideas than us, or maybe a different temperament than us. We're absolutely sure they're arrogant. And that's part of why I, I think we need to think a little more about what it means to be arrogant. And the next few qualities help a little because they're kind of illustrations of what it means to be arrogant, if you think about them. Like first Paul says, a leader is not to be quick-tempered. And why do people get angry quickly? It's self-importance or self-will, right? And then he says, not addicted to wine, not a, a drunk. And what's being addicted to wine? You know what it, being addicted to wine is? It's making your own pleasure the top priority in your life. There's a lot of pride and self-focus that are involved in overdosing on pleasure. And not pugnacious means not a violent person, someone who's so focused on himself and what he wants that he's willing to hurt other people to get it. And greedy for gain means not materialistic. And I know those all kind of sound like random, like where did Paul get that list? But if you think about what happens when a person is arrogant, when he doesn't get his way, the first temptation is to get angry and upset really quickly. But another temptation is to give in to self-pity and all of a sudden be like, you know what? What's the point? Nobody wants to do what I say anyway. And then you're tempted to start living for pleasure. Or I guess the, the other temptation, you know, would be to fight to get what you want. Instead of being motivated by a love for God, it's tempting to be motivated by I want to be God, especially in leadership, to be arrogant. And that arrogance is a lot of what's behind greed, actually, right? Either I don't trust God can take care of me, so I want to get enough money so I can be God and take care of me, or I don't want my life to be about doing what God wants, but what I want, and so I'm willing to sin to get more money to, to do it. But actually, those are all sort of fundamental leadership temptations, which is probably why they're on the list, because you're so focused on getting stuff done as a leader and moving things forward and making change, and that's usually a hard process. It's not efficient. I mean, especially leadership in the church. If you're all about efficiency, honestly, you may not be able to be a leader in the church, at least until you get some things worked out. Because the way God designed leadership in the church to work with a plurality and like a family is definitely not efficient. And yet, there are good, important things to do, and so there are going to be some things that are especially tempting for someone who's a leader in the church, and I think Paul's calling them out, like anger, self-pity, addiction to pleasure, fighting, and greed, and those are going to be especially tempting for the arrogant person. Those are like biblical marks of pride, not just like, I don't like that person's personality, they must be proud, or like, maybe, maybe they, they kind of seem to me to be proud. No. Are they quick to get angry? Are they focused on their own pleasure? Are they fighting with others? Are they greedy? And that's why when we look for spiritual leaders, we're not really concerned about their resume. We're not asking first, hey, like, who can get a lot done? We're not asking, is this guy super talented? Could this person lead a business? Would he be a good CEO? No, instead we're concerned about their attitude. 
because it's not just about getting stuff done. The truth is, proud people get a lot of stuff done in this world. Arrogant people get a lot of stuff done in this world. But we're not about just getting stuff done. We're about representing Christ. And so we're looking for a different kind of person. We're looking for people who are not arrogant or self-willed. And what does that look like? First, it's not being all those things. But maybe more positively, what does it look like? And one thing we could do is flip those qualities upside down. It looks like they're patient. It looks like they pursue peace. It looks like they are satisfied and not controlled by a love for pleasure. They're easy to get along with. That's one half of the list Paul gives, the knots. But we don't just have to flip those around because in verse 8, Paul gives some more qualities which really correspond in terms of put off and put on. And the first is that he has to be hospitable. And that word means lover of strangers. So look, if you don't love strangers, you are disqualified from being a pastor or elder. That is a disqualification. And, and again, this isn't a personality trait. So I'm personally, by nature, shy for sure. And if it was just me, like out of the box, who I am by nature, I probably uh, would you know, live in a cabin in the mountains in Colorado with my wife and uh, not talk to many strangers if I didn't have to. But the thing is, I'm a Christian. And so God calls me to love strangers. And it, this isn't actually an option for me. I know that we don't normally think of being hospitable as that important, but it is for a lot of reasons. Like, first of all, the gospel. You know what the gospel is, basically? Hospitality. Meaning, the gospel is a message about how God loves strangers, and not just strangers, like his enemies. And he goes to great lengths, not just to make them a nice little tea. (laughs) He goes to great lengths to bring those strangers, those enemies, inside to his family and make them his, not just his friends, but his actual sons and daughters. And so if we're going to represent the gospel, we need to be somebody who works at bringing people who are on the outside in. But true hospitality is also a good antidote to arrogance, actually, if you think about it. Because if you're really loving strangers, not using strangers like to post pictures, of yourself being kind, but like loving strangers, if you're really doing that, they are messy and they're gonna make your life more complicated and uh, less comfortable. And I could tell you all kinds of stories about that. And so if you're in it for you, you're not gonna be in it very long. Which is why Paul says an elder needs to be hospitable, the kind of person who pursues people on the outside to bring them to the inside. And next he says he needs to be someone who loves good. So instead of being this person who's all focused on like what he wants and has a passion for pleasure and is willing to sin to get it, he's someone, you meet the elder, he has a passion for kindness. He has a passion for what's honorable, for what's right, for what's good. And so if we're talking leadership, we might say, looking at someone who might be a leader, how's his relationship with his wife and his children? How about himself? How much does he love himself? When was the last time he got angry? What was it about? Is he addicted to anything? Is he a fighter? Is he someone who it's easy to get in an argument with? You know, the kind of people where you're like, hello, and all of a sudden, like, you didn't know it, but you're like in a fight? Uh, Is he someone who's known for being generous? Does he sacrifice for people he doesn't know? Does he move towards others? And what does he get excited about? Is it what God says is good? Then sensible, that's the next quality. And and another word for that is self-controlled. But here it's focusing on your mind, 
the way he thinks. So we all have a lot of thoughts. Even now, you're having a lot of thoughts. And as we interact with people, what's happening is we're constantly interpreting. Things are not just going on like facts. We are interpreting those facts. And if we, if we have a lot of those thoughts and interpretations, if, if we took the way we were interpreting things out of our heads and like actually said them to someone else, what we would find is a lot of times they don't actually make sense. Or at least you couldn't say they were fully accurate. And so part of maturing in this life is realizing that you have to exercise self-control, not just with what you say, but actually how you think to make sure that you aren't always listening to yourself and that you don't take every single thought and interpretation you have seriously, which takes humility because you want to let what God says actually drive how you think and relate to others. That's being sensible. And then next Paul says, an elder needs to be just, or another word is upright, which means he does what's right in his relationships with people, which is sometimes so hard because people don't do what's right in their relationship with you. Like we're born imitators and we're constantly imitating. So if someone yells at you while you're driving, what do you do? You yell back at them. Somebody smiles at you. you. This works like with babies. You smile at a baby. What do they often start doing after they spit up on you and all that stuff? They like, they'll start learning to smile back at you. We're natural imitators. And so part of the difficulty in this life is that many of us just go through life imitating other people who are not doing what's right in their relationship with us. So we're not doing what's right in our relationship with them. And elders need to be different. They need to be the kind of people who are willing to disadvantage themselves for the advantage of others who may not even notice. <laughs> and then holy is another word Paul uses for an elder. And I'm sure we, we know the standard definitions of that, like set apart. But another word could be devoted. A spiritual leader needs to be someone who's devoted to God. And this is so important because uh, spiritual leadership can become like a business. And, uh, and, and part of why it can become like a business, I think, especially in America, is because we like efficiency and we like good businesses. Like, we want our Starbucks to get our order the right way, and we sort of want church to be like that. And so we can like elders who are almost like businessmen or CEOs. And it's fine to be a businessman or a CEO, of course. Like, I, like I've said, it, it's, it's, it's fine. But it's not essential to being an elder. But you know what is essential? We want elders who are in all of God. And if they are, the next characteristic in verse 8 will be true for sure, disciplined, which isn't that different from self-controlled, really. But as a sinner, you've got these desires that aren't always right. Like you're living with a liar, and that liar is like inside of you. <laughs> and so if you just go with what you, if I just went with what I felt like doing, my life would be such a mess because so many of my desires were wrong. I, I, when I was born, as I, I was born a sinner, I've been saved. I'm so thankful that God has changed me and given me desires that I didn't have before, but I still have some of those wrong desires. And one of the biggest wrong desires most of us have is to get our own way. And part of being a mature person is being able to say no to yourself because you trust Jesus. And you know he's smarter than you. And you know he's good. 
and you want what he wants even more than what you want. And that takes faith and humility. Like Jesus, right now, even though I may want this and I think it's best for me, I know you're good and you're wise and you have the best plan for me. And so I'm gonna trust in this moment that what you want is better than what I think I want. And I'm gonna say no to me and yes to you, which is pretty much what it means to be disciplined. And it's a very different quality than you'll find on most what makes a leader list, which is one reason why I'm going over this because this is not just for leaders, it's actually for all of us. And one of the big problems that most of us have is that we're often impressed by the wrong people. And we even have our own little list of what we think is important in a leader. And unfortunately, we might not say it, but we kind of think like the world and value what the world values, which I don't know, might be someone who's like famous or someone who's really smart or has a good education or sometimes just someone who seems nice, which might be fine, but they're not necessarily what God is first emphasizing when he looks for leaders and long-term, that's gonna create problems if we're mostly impressed by the wrong qualities or secondary qualities, you know what's gonna happen is that's gonna shape who we become. And that's why we need elders actually. We need to make sure we have the right kind of elders that we trust God and use his list because we need to be able to come to a place in this world and be part of a family where we're reminded that we believe the gospel and that the gospel we believe turns everything upside down and changes the direction in our lives. And so what's impressive to us now that we're Christians is not the same as it used to be. And so it's not someone who's really good looking and has all these ladies liking him, but it's someone who's faithful to his wife for like 70 years. And it's, it's not this person who makes all this money and drives all these amazing cars while his family's out of control. But it's someone who's like there with his kids and he's working at discipling them. And you know, sometimes he even has to like not take the promotion because he, he needs more time to disciple his kids. And it's not somebody who just walks into the room. He's like, Mr. Personality, like, hey, hey, hey. You know, everybody's looking at him, me, me, me. Let me tell you something about me. And then you talk about me. And he's just focused. I don't care who gets in my way. I'm getting things done. I'm a doer. I'm getting things done. But it's someone who's honestly, sometimes you, you almost don't even notice him. Because he's so looking out for others. And those qualities are important to us because we know they're connected back to being people who believe something. Like we believe the greatest leader in the history of the world was crucified and, and that he's gonna rise from the dead. And we believe all these other great truths as well. And we wanna apply those truths to how we actually live, which is what we're hoping happens in us as a church as a whole. We want to give this world a picture of what it looks like when Jesus is king. Because that's a church that's really put in order, right? It's not a church that has like a really nice building or like a, a Starbucks in the lobby or like really great music with smoke, you know, whatever that stuff is that comes out behind and, and like really awesome programs. Like, oh, that sounds so fun, you know? Let's um, uh, yoga on Tuesdays or, or whatever, like Bible verse yoga or something. It's these, it's these uh, transformed lives. That's what... <laughs> That's a church put in order. A church that the lives are different. They, they, they reflect the gospel. 
And we don't want to settle. We don't want to settle for that other stuff because transformed lives, that can happen. And it can happen because Jesus is at work. It's, it's going to happen because of the gospel. And, and if it's going to happen, one place we need to start, Paul says, is we need to start by having the right kind of elders. And that doesn't mean just efficient, super efficient, or perfect at everything. But it does mean men who are giving us a picture of what it means to be holy in terms of their family life, in terms of their personal life, and even in terms of their doctrine as well, which is the third category. Real quick, if you look at verses 9 and 10, Paul looks at a man's family life, his personal life, and then what he believes. When an elder enters the room, a passion for truth better enter the room with him as well. Paul says he must hold firm to the trustworthy word as taught. And he's talking about the revealed word of God. So we need men that are more than just nice. And the reason we need men that are more than just nice is because Christianity is not just about being nice. It's founded on certain truths that must be believed if we're going to be Christians. And those truths are so important, and they're always coming under attack. And so an elder must more than simply believe those truths. He must hold fast to them. He, he must be convinced of them. And this means when we look at elders, one of the big things we're looking for is a man who shares a deep biblical understanding of Christian theology theology and the gospel. We're talking about stuff like the fact that Christianity is entirely true, the only religion, the inspiration and authority uh, that God's revealed, the, the inspiration and authority of scripture, God's sovereignty, God's character, the trinity, the divinity and exclusivity of Christ, the sinfulness of man, what happened on the cross, what it meant, the fact that forgiveness of sins is only given to man through the work of Christ, grace alone, faith alone, uh, scripture alone, Christ alone, to God be the glory alone, the resurrection of Jesus from the dead, the return of Christ, the state of man after death, those are some of the basics. And yet eternal life literally depends on what you think about them. And so because these issues are so important, no matter how gifted someone is or great a speaker or how well-liked they are, no one who falters on the basics of biblical doctrine should even be considered for eldership because this is one of the qualifications. He has to hold fast to the trustworthy word. And I think that implies, honestly, he loves it. It matters to him. We need elders, that's first, but not just kind of elders. What kind do we need? Elders who are blameless in family life, in personal life, and in doctrine. Why? And we can just mention number three. I promise I'm going to try to just mention this. Why do we need these kinds of elders? And this is the end of verse 9. So that. So that. And that's purpose. An elder needs to know and love God's word. First, Paul says, so that he might be able to give instruction in sound doctrine. There's a lot that we need to know to be able to the Christian life, to, to be able to live the Christian life. And so we need teachers. And one of the big differences between an elder and a deacon is an elder is someone who focuses on teaching, not just from the pulpit. He doesn't have to be a great preacher, but he does have to be able to make disciples by teaching them to obey what God commanded. And then second, he needs to be able to defend the faith, the end of verse 9, and also to rebuke those who contradict it, which uh, some of us don't really like, like rebuking. I know for me, I would much rather be uh, positive all the time, but sometimes it's actually negative to be positive all the time because there's error out there. And so if you don't stand up against the error, you're actually being ungracious, not more gracious. And so an elder needs to be the kind of man who loves truth so much that sometimes he'll say, no, that's wrong. Not because he's ornery or grumpy or likes to argue, but because there is such a thing 
as truth and it matters and it's coming under attack and so we have to guard it and we take guarding it seriously even if the world doesn't because we know this is like, this is it for us. This is our privilege as a church. We've got this message that is the hope of eternal life and that message must be protected at all costs because you know what? It is way more important than us. The message of the gospel is way more important than me. And so this is why we're on the planet. We as a church are to be a pillar of truth. And that's part of why God gives us elders. We need help. We need elders. We need men whose lives reflect the gospel and who love the gospel and hold fast to the gospel so that they can help us understand the gospel and so that they can protect us and rebuke us and correct us when we're not believing the gospel or when we're living lives that don't match up to the gospel. And those kinds of elders are important if we're gonna be a strong, healthy church. Not men who are great in the world's eyes and not men who are perfect and not men who do everything absolutely right all the time the way we like it, but men who have a reputation for holiness. They love their wife, they disciple their children, they don't have to have their own way, they don't get angry super quickly, they're not controlled by pleasure, they're not always fighting with people, they're not greedy, they love strangers, they're self-controlled, they love what is good, they're disciplined, and they're able to teach. And those kind of men, they look ordinary in the world. They like look really super ordinary. But they're actually a gift from God to us. And you know what? We need to be thankful for them if we have them. And we do. And we need to pray that God continues to bless the elders he's given us and that he would continue to raise up men like this to help us know him and live for him and be a church that that does what it's supposed to do because we need churches like that. They're important to God and they, they really are important to us. Let's pray. Lord, uh, thank you for your word. Thank you for the chance we have now. It's on a Sunday morning, guy up here talking for a long time. It looks so ordinary, but it's actually your word, like you, you, this is from you, and we believe that. And because we believe it, we take it so seriously. And we pray, God, that you will do more than we can really think through this simple act, that your spirit would take your word and preach this message to us and strengthen us, Lord, and raise up men like this within our church that might lead us and that we might even send out all over the world to plant more churches more strong biblical local churches for your glory, Jesus. And we pray this in your name. Amen.